Hey guys, welcome back to the Elevate HD podcast. This is episode six, and today I am joined by Austin Stout. In case you don't know who Austin is, um, he is a coach and an educator within the physique enhancement world. And through his company, the Integrated Muscle and Health, Austin has worked with hundreds of competitors, non-competitors, and athletes of all ages. So Austin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the introduction there. You're very welcome. I always try to do a bit of a bit of digging on my guests. Yeah. <laughs> a good introduction. But um, today I thought we would delve into the world of gut health because this is something that Austin is quite passionate about and is very knowledgeable on um, and is definitely something I'd love to learn more about as well. Um, so Austin, in terms of gut health, like why do we need to worry about this? Why is it important both for our overall health and also in terms of our performance and our training and like our athletic ability okay so so in terms like if we we can relate gut health to not only overall health but definitely to physique enhancement um in quite a few different ways so the research is kind of starting to catch up on this as well and it's showing us and we've already learned this through trial and error mostly, but it's showing us that the gut communicates with most of the systems in the body. Um, the gut actually has some pretty cool features to it in that there's an enteric nervous system in the gut, which basically lines the gut. These neurons can communicate um, and they can send out signals so we communicate with different systems. Um, and the gut can actually work as, as like its own organ. It's pretty cool. So, of course, there's organs within the gut, our intestines and what have you. Um, obviously, the the obvious stuff was to be like nutrient absorption and making sure that the food you eat is absorbed and, and utilized correctly, of course. Um, and then, you know, cosmetically too, you know, if, if you look bloated and have gut issues and things, that's not exactly aesthetically pleasing. So there's, there's a lot of things that uh, go into that. And that's from, from like an actual gut standpoint. Now, there's a lot of indirect things that go on there too. Um, hormone, like certain types of hormone metabolism occurring in the gut, um, certain types of, um, neurotransmitter production in the guts, like serotonin, for example, is primarily produced in the gut. So hormones and neurochemistry are also really heavily tied into the gut. So, um, unfortunately, the gut can be negatively impacted in a lot of ways. There's so many things that's really overwhelming and it's really confusing because there are a lot of things that can hurt the gut. And there's a lot of information online that tells you kind of do this. If you have this, you know, if you're bloated, do this, take this probiotic, take this uh, digestive enzyme, take whatever. Right. So it's very confusing. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of ways that you can um, potentially cause more harm. Like, like, you know, you have a constipation, so you load up on this fiber supplements or something, right. Or you, or you take a bunch of these probiotics and you, you don't really understand like why the gut issues there in the first place and what could be exacerbating it. Um, so I think probably with the like, talking in more of an overview, I think the most useful information would probably be, um, what things actually cause, what are the main things that actually cause GI dysfunction? So people kind of know, because without ever adding a supplement or doing a protocol or anything like that, if you obviously eliminate the source of the issue, that's going to be most of the battle, right? Um, 
So main thing, and this is going to be males, females, competitors, gen pop is stress is going to be the biggest thing that's going to impact the gut. And that happens because the autonomic nervous system, a lot of people probably know that sympathetic, parasympathetic fight or flight, right? So if we are in that sympathetic tone all the time, or most of the time, then gut motility slows down. So like transit of the food and, and all the, and that the gut function overall slows down. Um, if we're in more of a parasympathetic state, then that's the, you know, rest and digest. Right. So, um, of course, a lot of people are very, very stressed out. That is a huge issue with anyone, whether you're a competitor or not. Um, so that is going to be a huge detriment to your overall GI function. Uh, and then over time that what might start out as like constipation or, or bloating can turn into bacterial issues like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO, right. Or yeast overgrowth, like candida, uh, men can get that, but women tend to get that a little bit more, a little, little more susceptible to the yeast side, um, can have, you know, can have things like chronic inflammation over time. So like a lot of the inflammatory diseases in the gut are colitis, Crohn's, um, I, you know, are types of like IBD inflammatory bowel diseases. So those can accumulate over time. Um, uh, leaky gut or science doesn't really like that term. It really what it is, is intestinal permeability, meaning the intestines are leaking things through. Um, when you get hyperpermeability, then you end up with um, systemic issues. So skin issues, brain fog, joint pain, stuff like that. I think you might've, that's like the one I posted the other day, I was talking about the joint pain um, and how that is really common with, um, with that permeability issue. So there's, there's a lot of, a lot of potential um, like indirect things that can kind of come from the gut. Yeah. That's so I think it's, a good start. it's not, a, <laughs> it's not a direct, you have X symptoms. So you have Y disease, like, and also the terms irritable bowel syndrome or irritable bowel disease are kind of umbrella terms for diseases that we're not sure. Is it multi multifactorial? Are there many diseases that are just under one name or it, there's a lot of unknowns with the gut as well. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, think of the names, irritable bowel meat, well, but why is it irritable? <laughs> you know, why, why is it irritable? You know, so that's, um, a lot of gut, a lot of figuring out gut issues is, a, is kind of, um, is problem solving it's process elimination, you know, figuring out what are the culprits and kind of where things are stemming from. That's why I mentioned stress as being the main culprit, because yes, we can identify, you know, we can identify a specific issue like uh, small intestine uh, SIBO, right? Very common one. But if we run some kind of protocol for that, but you still have a ton of underlying stress, chances are either A, the protocol is not going to work. And if it does, it's just going to reoccur again, right? So, you know, figuring out the source. Now, that's just one thing, um, it just being the most common, but there certainly are others. Food, poor food quality could obviously cause gut dysfunction. We aren't, we aren't as susceptible to that in our population. Yes, there's certain like food intolerances, like, you know, if somebody eats a bunch of a certain vegetable, they get gas or something, right? Um, or, you know, maybe they have a, a lactose intolerance or something. But a lot of the time, if people have 
you know, I, I get a client, for example, they have like six, seven, eight, nine, ten food. And like, I can't eat any of this stuff. It's like, well, you probably don't have all these food intolerances. You probably have some kind of underlying gut issue. We fix that. Bam. The intolerances go away type of thing. So, uh, so food can cause it in, in males a little bit more, you would run into like overeating issues causing, you know, causing gut problems. Like if having to push a lot of food and in growth phases, stuff like that. Um, I've had some issues there. It gets really delicate when you get up to like really high calorie ranges. Um, females can have that. Obviously it's less common. Like there's not, you're not running into a lot of females eating like 5,000 calories a day. It doesn't really, it doesn't really happen. Um, yeah. Now, of course that's relevant. Like for a female, maybe it's maybe 3,500 calories is like a, a ton of food for a female, you know, and that causes some gut dysfunction, but in general, um, for females, we actually are seeing under eating and a lot of the females, you know, that are coming in. So it's not, it's not like it's a overeating issue. Um, they are more like under eating and stressed out is more, yeah. more so the case. So what about, um, restriction and like, say someone's sticking to a rigid meal plan for a very long time, would that cause any sort of intolerances or any sort of gut dysbiosis? Sure. Yeah, it can. Yeah, it definitely, definitely like, um, intolerances from, from lacking, you know, lacking any variety is certainly possible. Um, different enzymes are breaking down different types of nutrients. Uh, so, you know, you can, those production of those enzymes could potentially like drop over time. So food variety is, there's nothing wrong with necessarily eating a lot of the same things, but I do think occasionally rotating, foods in and out is a good thing in terms of not developing those intolerances. Um, but that's kind of, that's kind of what, what we would look at in terms of food, you know, overeating, um, lack of variety, potentially poor food quality. Not, I mean, of course, maybe like a gen pop person that comes in and they, they eat junk food all day, something like that. Like then a Twinkie diet or something. Right. And then, yeah. And that's, and that's where, you, unless it's like a, a really liberal, like a really liberal approach to like, um, if it fits your macros, you know, like someone's eating just whatever they want. Now, of course, yeah, you might have a, some gut dysfunction there for sure. If you're just eating like purely processed junk all day, but we don't, we just don't see that too much. Now, other things would be hormonal birth control, really common one um, that causes a lot of other <laughs> issues as well, but hormonal birth control, um, that the irregularities in hormones causing gut motility to change. So think of it like this. Um, the bacteria is going to ferment. Like you, you ever had a, you ever had a fermented food, you know, they put it in like the solution it ferments. It could be, I don't know if in the U S it would be like, um, like fermented eggs or like pickled, like different types of pickled foods and stuff. So Sauerkraut. So, sauerkraut. Sauerkraut. Yep. <laughs> Perfect. Right. So what's happening is this, this bacteria is literally just growing right now. That can be a good thing. That can be a good thing if we need some fermentation because we need to feed the good bacteria in our gut. So we need those sugars and those, and that fermentation going on. However, if we're feeding all of the wrong stuff, then we're going to have a problem. So in in the, um, overgrowth type of category, we would call that 
opportunistic or dysbiotic bacteria. So those are the kind of like the bad, the bad guys. And they're fine in small quantities. Like we need some of these things. So really scary stuff that people think is you shouldn't have. We actually already have presence. So like E. coli, we can have presence of, but not have an infection. Um, strep, streptococcus bacteria, staph bacteria, um, candida. Like we can have all of that stuff in small amounts. And that's not necessarily abnormal. It's not necessarily like an overgrowth or an infection. So, um, but it's just when we start feeding it, feeding it, feeding it, feeding it, and then it overgrows. And the reason they call it opportunistic is because that bad stuff tends to outgrow the good stuff. Right. So that's when you end up with like, like the small, you know, and that intestinal overgrowth. Um, so, you know, with that, the mo and what I was getting at there earlier was the motility issue. So think of, think of if someone's really constipated, think of how much fermentation goes on. If nothing's moving out of their bowel, like everything just sits in there, like, right. It just sits in there for, you know, a day or two days longer than it should. Well, it's going to ferment. Like it's, it's, your body's going to try to do something with it. All that bacteria is just going to, uh, really like really nasty where it would be like fester, just like festering in your gut. You know what I mean? So, um, that's, that's more or less what's happening with that bacteria. And then it will just in turn overgrow. Right. Um, and then over time, if you get that damage to the gut lining and you get that permeability, then that bacteria disruption can actually become systemic because we have bacteria on our skin. We have bacteria in our, um, you know, in our lower GI tract, um, we have bacteria in, you know, females have bacteria in like vaginal tracts, like yeast infections, if that candida grows, right. Um, you can get it in, have you ever seen anyone that has can really bad candida infection, their tongue gets really white. It's called oral thrush. Yeah. Um, like, or they get athlete's foot, you know, like all the, like tons of fungus on their feet type of thing, or they get it like on their arms or elbows or whatever it might be. So all of that stuff can potentially start in the gut. So there's a lot, there's <laughs> a lot of, yeah, a lot of potential issues. Especially when you consider like the, all the research coming out on like the gut brain axis and how all that stress and anxiety or anything can drive so many issues in the gut and how everything's just so connected. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's again, it's, it's very, it can be very delicate. Um, it can be easy to disrupt. However, it's, it's not, it shouldn't be a scary thing either because the gut, the microbiome is always changing. So like, for example, uh, somebody goes online and they, they research, um, they see that, uh, who knows, lacking uh, a night of sleep deprivation changes gut microbiome. Okay, fine. Drinking water is probably going to change your gut microbiome for a split second, right? Um, breathing something in that you don't normally breathe in, you know, whatever, like anything, any, that gut might, that gut bacteria is always changing to stimulus, like any type of input, it changes, right? Whether that's a stressor, whether that's something you consume, um, anything you, you drink alcohol on the weekend, that's going to change your gut microbiome temporarily. So the question really becomes how much change before it's a bad thing and how chronic, like how often are you changing it? If you're an otherwise healthy person, you don't have any gut issues. Are you going to have a problem if you have one stressful day? 
No, no, I mean, not likely. Um, but we can see this in acute instances too. Like as in, if anyone's ever had um, like a really, really stressful day, then they get diarrhea, <laughs> they get loose stools. That's, that's, you know, that's a motility thing, right? That's that, that um, disruption in the speed in which things, the bowels aren't forming because not, the fluid and the waste aren't moving through at the correct speeds, right? So you can see that acutely. Um, another funny example for people that weight train is ever have a really, really brutal workout and then ate a meal real quick after and then had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a stress and that's a motility thing. Like I've done it like, Oh shit, I should have waited to eat that. Like my body was too simp, you know, it was like too sympathetically driven. And then I tried to like cram all this food in and then you're like, Oh shit, I gotta go to the bathroom, yeah. you know? So, um, a lot of people have probably felt that one before. So I like pair it with something like a caffeinated pre-workout. I presume. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, so those, all those things are acute reactions and they're not necessarily, it's not necessarily something that it's like, oh, I shouldn't, I probably shouldn't do that again, but it's not like, oh no, I have a problem type of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess a good, a good question would be when should you actually you know, assume that maybe something is wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, because we are in a, we're in the age of information. So there's a lot of that breeds a lot of hypochondriacs, right? Like I get, you know, Hey coach, um, I farted two times today. Mm -hmm. I probably have SIBO. It's like, well, hmm, maybe not, but you know, it's like, Hey, I, you know, my, my stool was a little bit different than it was yesterday. I probably have SIBO. It's like, well, not necessarily. So, um, when you have something chronically happening, like you notice a pattern, it's happening not for a day, two days or something like that. It's like weeks. That's probably an issue. Um, more severe cases, people wake up bloated. Like they haven't even had any food or water and they literally wake up in the morning bloated. That's prob- That's a problem. You know, um, you're waking up with, with especially, especially common in um, small intestinal overgrowth like that from like the belly button down, you know, like that pelvic lower pooch area gets really blown out. Um, so that, you know, waking up like that, probably an issue having, have you ate food? Have you crammed down a bunch of food all day and you're a little bloated by the end of the day? Probably not an issue. You know what I mean? Um, not going to the bathroom regularly. That's a common one. Like, Oh, that's my normal. I only, I only have a bowel two days a week. It's like, well, no, that's a problem. Yeah. You know, so you should probably have, well, you should, should have one daily or if depending on the amount of food, it can be multiple times a day for, for some people. Um, and I've, I even know in situations where my food was super, super high, I would have one like every time I ate in between like every meal. Cause there's just so much, like so much, food. um, <laughs> no, nah, it's not convenient. It's really inconvenient. Yeah. Not really. Um, so, you know, so that like if lack of bowels, obviously an issue, um, skin, like that skin and joint pain, that's unexplainable can be issues. Um, so I always like ask people about their skin. Like, do you have any skin issues, rashes, eczema and psoriasis and stuff like that? That's chronic that pops up. Does it flare up more when your gut is upset? You know, so you can make the connection there joint pain. So joint pain, it's like, let's say you've injured your, uh, your elbow, you know, you have one elbow that you tweaked or one shoulder or something that you hurt training. 
that is a tissue injury from the activity, right? But it's like, oh, all my joints hurt, like both of my knees, both of my elbows, but I've done nothing to myself. It's like, okay, well, that's an inflammation issue that could potentially be, be a gut issue. It could be an overuse issue as well, but we could examine that. Um, so the, I think that, uh, I think that research I posted the other day was actually talking about, was actually talking about the, uh, arthritis and how they were linking different types of arthritis to, to gut microbiome issues. Um, even, even autoimmune arthritis. So like rheumatoid arthritis, which is, you know, can get pretty severe. They're linking that to the gut. Um, autoimmune issues very commonly caused from the gut. So ones that listeners may have heard of like Hashimoto's probably maybe one that people have heard of really common thyroid uh, autoimmune issue. That's probably the most common one people have heard of. Um, women endometriosis is, can have kind of an autoimmune element to it. Some people have maybe heard of that and there's a bunch, I mean, there's tons of autoimmune issues, but um, you get that inflammatory immune response because there's a lot of immune cells. There's a lot of inflammatory cells. So you figure like it's being stressed out and that active, 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 active all the time. You're going to get a lot, you know, you're going to get a big response. So um, those would be things that you would potentially think, okay, I have a gut issue eating. Like every time you eat, you have to rush to the bathroom. Probably not a good thing type of thing, you know? So there's throwing up acid reflux. Like those are all, you know, all gut issues. Yeah. I suppose it's kind of similar in terms of, as you were saying, um, looking for kind of chronic symptoms. It's same with stress, like an acute stress because you have like a deadline at work or something is not necessarily unhealthy and it could be kind of motivating, but chronic underlying like low grade stress constantly is going to cause a lot of health issues. So that's kind of like, just like a distinguishing feature. Yeah. And I would say that the, uh, I would say that that's actually more common. So you, the acute, the acute stressors are pretty easy to point out. You have a deadline. I know I'm stressed. We know, right. You're going to get through the deadline. You're probably going to feel better. It's more like the, the little stuff that accumulates every single day that you don't pay much attention to the, um, you're not really happy with your job, but you go there every single day and you're, you're just at least a little stressed out the whole entire day. You, maybe your relationship, maybe you lose, you get two less hours of sleep than you should every night. It's like, well, do that for months on end. And it's a lot, right? Um, perceived stress is huge. Like you just suck at dealing with things. You know, it's like you ever take, you take two people or a better example would be have you ever met someone that their life seems like it has, it's really unfortunate circumstances, but they're generally pretty positive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's perception, right? That's like, how do they, how do they perceive their situation? Uh, and that that's huge. I mean, that's, that's most of what stress is, is perception. I mean, physical stressors for us would be training, right? Like that's our actual physical stressor or maybe cardio, depending on if we're doing a lot of it. Um, maybe like PEDs, if someone's doing like a, like a ton, like a super high dose of PEDs could be systemically stressful, of course. But, uh, but for the most part, environmental stressors are what gets people. It's yeah. not now in our population, 
you're adding environmental stressors that we have all the same shit that everyone else does, but now you're training on top of it. And it's just that, that stress bucket overflows. Right. So, um, you know, you have to, you have to be able to regulate it, but you know, things to, I guess we could, let's go, maybe go into some steps, like little things that you could do that are practical that maybe don't require knowledge of like a protocol for something, for example. So baseline stuff, like baseline stuff would obviously be the stress reduction is going to be huge in severe cases where I need to get like something's been around for months or years. I mean, I'm getting people that, Hey, I've had, I've had this gut issue since I was 16 and I'm now 45. It's like, well, that's pretty severe. You know what I mean? So cases like that, we might, the the lifestyle changes are going to be necessary. So all the stuff that we would typically do, is it going to be important? Like morning light exposure, evening lack of light exposure, blue light blockers, bed, good bedtimes, good wake up times, sun exposure, you know, just general like parasympathetic activities are going to be helpful. All that stuff, super helpful, right? Um, for more severe cases, like I might need to actually reduce activity. Like I need to reduce the amount of stuff that they're doing. So I need to, in some of those cases, like I have to reduce training. I have to, you, you can't, you can't give me a female coming in with hormone dysfunction and a horrible gut that's training six days a week and getting her ass kicked every day at work because she's so stressed out. Like it's, she's not going to get better. So, you know, that type of person, we're going to need to reduce training load, right? That might be, it might be a 25% reduction. It might be a 50% reduction in some people, depending on just how bad, you know, how bad the, the situation is. And that's not necessarily permanent. It's just, it's what we need to do at that time. Um, overall activity might need to be reduced if they're like the neurotic type that's getting 25,000 steps a day. It's like steps aren't inherently stressful. Like walking is not that stressful, but when you do 20,000 steps a day, that's a lot. Like you're not getting any rest, you know what I mean? So, uh, something like that, we might have to, might have to bring down a little bit, any type of, you know, any type of like chemical stressors. So it's like, a guy and they're taking a lot of PEDs. We might have to regulate that. Um, females or males, like tons of stimulants, regulating that. That's maybe an additional, you know, uh, sympathetic nervous system driver. So that's about like eight things right there. You know that we can we can easily we can easily manipulate that. It's just that's just stress related. Um, non-stress things would be basic stuff that most people know, chewing your food, you know, drinking, not like cramming a a ton of water in, in the meal. So you're not watering down digestive acids too much, like easy, really, really, really easy stuff. Um, having a routine, believe it or not, bowels are kind of on a circadian routine. If you never know, you normally poop at the same time every single day. It's like, I'm so routine that I get out of bed. I immediately, I'm, I'm like, oh shit, time to go to the bathroom. Like my body's like, hey, you know, otherwise my body knows because otherwise I would, I would literally poop my pants in my bed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it knows like, oh, hey, we're awake. Let's go to the bathroom. Yeah. Right. So, um, so that is, that is a rhythm. Um, you know, if you have to rush out the door in the morning, believe it or not, that might not sound significant. 
But maybe if you had another 15 minutes, you might actually get to go to the bathroom at home and you might not hold it and then feel miserable and back up your digestion while you're at work. So like routine makes, you know, makes a big difference. Um, uh, I mean, that's a lot of like baseline stuff without, without necessarily adding in any type of supplementation. Now we can do, we can do some basic, some kind of like basic supplementation stuff that will help most people. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you, cause like, I think the main, um, supplements that are spoken about when it comes to digestion would be things like a probiotic or a prebiotic, as well as like the use of glutamine, um, or peppermint or various kind of things like that. Do you have any, is there any validity in any of them? Yeah. So probiotics, probiotics and prebiotics are really tricky. And the reason, because if you think about what we said at the beginning about the bacterial growth, now a prebiotic would be feeding or trying to grow the bacteria. So if we already have bacterial overgrowth, we do not probably do not want to take a prebiotic because you are just going to feed it, feed it, feed it. And it's probably going to be feeding the wrong stuff. Um, probiotics, kind of the same thing. If you taking too much of something and you already have too much of something, you might just have much more, right? Um, you don't want to feed, you don't want to feed the bacteria. So um, if we are dealing with a bacterial overgrowth issue or most gut issues in general, I don't use a probiotic initially most of the time. And now if I do some kind of protocol where we're, we're wiping a bunch of like, we're trying to wipe out the bacteria, we would do the probiotic after to repopulate, like repopulate. So that's why if anyone's ever heard of like a low FODMAP diet, that's, that's the point of that. The low FODMAP diet, the premise is the FODMAPs are feeding the bacteria. So you decrease that. So you're not firming, you're not fermenting. Right. So that low FODMAP diet might not be a permanent fix, but it might be a diet that you would want to do while you work on all the other stuff at the same time. Um, glutamine is one I was going to mention. Glutamine has a lot of validity for gut health. It's really good for the mucosal lining in the gut. It's really good for helping in the intestinal permeability issues. It's pretty cheap. It's pretty easy to get anywhere, like any country pretty much can get glutamine. Um, you can do pretty high doses of it. I would, I start people anywhere from like 10 grams twice a day, usually like AM and PM. I've gone as high as in really short cases where, especially if they have a lot of permeability, so like they have a lot of skin issues or joint pain, we'll blast it real hard out of the front, like front load it. We might do we might go up to 80 grams a day for a few weeks and then back it down to maybe 40 or 20. Um, so glutamine is a really good one. Another really good one for that intest or for that uh, GI lining is zinc carnosine. Um, that's another pretty easy one to get. I norm I normally use doctor's best brand, which you can get in a lot of countries can get it. Life extension has one too, I think. So that's a good one. And I normally do, I think it's 75 milligrams, I think is what the dose is twice a day, AM and PM. That's really good, again, for that intestinal permeability and that inflammation. So you're just soothing that gut lining and you're sealing it up so a bunch of stuff isn't leaking through. Uh, and then those two supplements, again, pretty inexpensive, pretty good bet. Now, everything, most things beyond that are really contextual. It's kind of situational. Uh, 
motility, like if you're really backed up, you can use some additional like magnesium citrate is kind of more of a laxative type of magnesium. It's going to move your bowels. Ginger will increase bowel motility. So those things could be like temporary reliefs for constipation potentially. Um, like psyllium or something. So psyllium, if you're going to use fiber, fiber in and of itself is, you know, remembering that soluble fiber is going to collect water, hence the name soluble. So if you are, um, constipation is really interesting because constipation could be going, not going to the bathroom, but diarrhea can also be constipation. Cause if you think about loose stool, sometimes it's, there's not really much waste coming out. It's like mostly liquid because that liquid in that solid are not forming. Mm -hmm. So for diarrhea, something like psyllium husk or another soluble fiber, like, uh, acacia gum, I think it's another one. I don't know. That's how you pronounce it. Those, those can work well. Um, and help solidify this, you know, solidify the stools with fiber, with something like that, you'd probably want to start at maybe five grams once a day, maybe do five grams twice a day. Cause you want to ramp up slow. If you, if you just cram in a bunch of fiber, you're going to get bloated, you know, it's going to pull a ton of water into your GI tract, but yeah, insoluble fiber would be, uh, what's actually going to like push things through. So you need some insoluble fiber in the diet. Vegetables, fruits contain insoluble fiber. Insoluble fiber would be like the indigestible, like celery, you know, like the really fibrous stuff you're not going to digest. That's going to be insoluble. So um, you definitely want both. But but yeah, a couple good takeaways there. Don't just don't just start dropping a bunch of probiotics. Don't just start dropping a bunch of fiber. Like that's super common. I get people that they come in they they present SIBO like they they have um, they wake up bloated like if they turn like if they turn to the side profile you can see like from the belly button down it's like blown out in that that lower pouch and they're taking a, t- a ton of pre and probiotics I'm like shit well you're just you're just feeding it you know so uh, be careful with that with that type of thing but supporting your gut lining is always safe if you need to increase fiber you can always do that. Um, all of the stress components that's beneficial to anyone anywhere really. So it's just, it's a good amount of things you can do there. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of interventions. What I was thinking about with probiotics is I know they were like quite trendy for a while, but then there was more kind of research coming out into like specific strains needed. Like like the tablet in the jar is not going to exactly match the strains in your own gut. Like, so it's going to be difficult to find, to pair them properly. Yeah. So yeah, and that's, that's true. There's from, from that standpoint, there are billions of types of strands. There's no probiotic that's ever going to replicate that. So what they generally do in like a, a multi-strand probiotic. So let's say a multi-strand might have maybe eight different bacteria in it. They're going to put in the probably eight different that seem to be the most beneficial or have the most research or seem to be the most abundant in the gut. Right. Uh, Because some of the strands obviously aren't going to have a huge abundance in the gut. So they, they don't really include them. Now, um, certain types of bacteria have different properties. So like, for example, if we do a, a SIBO protocol in that protocol, we kill off, we're killing off bacteria in the gut. 
that includes good bacteria. So if we take your, a common probiotic with, a, with the antimicrobials, it's probably just going to get killed by the antimicrobial. But there's one type, uh, it's called Saccharomyces boulardii, big, long, funky name. It's resistant. It's pretty resistant to kill off. So like we would use that during the kill off protocol for extra support. It's also been shown to help with um, different infections like C. diff infection or H. pylori. So um, we would use it, but your common probiotics, not a lot of the time they are, the bacteria is dead in the bottle because it doesn't get stored properly or, or depending on the processing. Um, it's maybe they use like acidophilus or some kind of dophilus strain or lactobacillus or something like that, which is pretty common, but it might be like a thousand unit, you know, a thousand billion or, or, or um, 1 billion CFU. Yeah. A 1 billion CFU is not even touching what you got, you know, what you have going on in your gut. So for example, if we do a SIBO protocol and we repopulate at the end, we are using, we are using like cold shipped probiotic that comes like cold shipped and it might be 150 billion, 200, or even up to 400 billion units. And it makes a huge difference. Like it, it would, um, I'm talking, you know, we wipe out someone's gut and then after the protocol, they start this probiotic and they, they might, their bowel might be funky for a few days just because it's so much bacteria. But then after a few days, bowels get solid, their blood sugar goes down, you know, like it's, it's extremely potent. So, you know, a lot of the stuff you would buy off like the shelf at the supermarket, it's probably been sitting in a warehouse and it's probably not super potent, if anything. Um, but yeah, different strains definitely do different things. We can do, um, I do something called a GI map test, which is you can order here. You can order it. Um, Australia has a version of it. That's a little different. The UK has a version of it. That's a little different, but it would measure, it would measure bacteria. So it would measure like the most common strains of bacteria, dysbiotic and normal and measure for things like. Uh, parasites that could be in your gut or, you know, other things like that. And then from that, we can basically do a run a protocol to help, you know, to help uh, whatever might be going on in there. But yeah, I don't, to my knowledge, there is no test that would show everything. And plus, even if there was, it would take you weeks to look at it. So um Another one other, you know, thing that's kind of cool is, um, with gut microbiome and I've talked about this a little bit, fecal transplants, they do these in some places. So that's a real thing. And there is some research on it. Um, like literally taking the, the fecal matter of a healthy gut microbiome and giving it to someone that doesn't have a healthy microbiome to help replace, you know, their unhealthy environment that they did some research in some neurological disorders like uh, autism things. And they found that there was a huge improvement in symptoms from doing it. So that's pretty cool. Um, because a lot of these neurological diseases have a gut component for sure. If you've ever seen someone that has 
some of those neurological issues, like they're on the spectrum, autism spectrum, or they have down syndrome. Like you see a lot of them have really bloated, like really bloated bellies. A lot of the time, well, there's, you know, there's some dysbiosis there for sure. Um, I had a client, I actually had a client a couple of years ago that he paid and they cold shipped these fecal transplant to him and very expensive, but he did it and, uh, noticed quite a bit of improvement. So, you know, maybe that will be a viable option for normal, normal ish type of people at some point. Um, but that's research is pretty, it's pretty sparse and, and pretty new. So, yeah, um, we're not quite there yet. Um, during my degree. And we also looked at like swapping the gut microbiomes of like an obese mouse and a non-obese mouse and the non-obese mice became obese and vice versa just from swapping the gut microbiomes, which was quite interesting. Yeah. It's, and it's, you know, you're from like a, an energy balance standpoint, obviously the arguments like calories in and calories out, which is, it's still going to hold true, but the, the gut microbiome are in, influencing other things like the hunger of the mouse, right? Like the, the tendency to crave things like the mouse, like hunger, hunger could be psychological, right? Like cravings versus hunger could be physical. Like literally your stomach's growling and you're, yeah, like you're hungry. Like right. So, um, so that microbiome may influence both of those things a little bit differently. So it, in, uh, you know, in our, our group or our population, we could track our food and eat no matter how horrible the gut microbiome is we might still just eat the same energy balance but in a gen pop person that absolutely makes a difference right you know the person that like they can't or like they they don't adhere to any type of you know portion control because they just are so damn hungry and crave so much shit all the time mm. right um and they also don't do themselves any favors because they eat you know poor quality food all the time and their, their microbiome is trash. So, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe someday, maybe someday that'll be, that'll be a little more researched. Yeah, no, it is. It is a cool concept. Um, but yeah, I was actually going to ask you about the GI map because I saw you link it in the post. So I thought that was really interesting. Cause it's like, it obviously like these days, a lot of coaches will refer their clients to get blood tests, but they really should be doing things like that as well to see what's going on in the gut. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, there's definitely instances where I do the GI map instead of doing the, um, lab work, like in ideal world, we just do all of it. Right. We just, but budget, like budget and, and availability is a, an issue for some people If they pay out of pocket for stuff, especially like, you know, in the UK, like you guys have your healthcare is a little different, but you can also order like privately through like meta checks and stuff like that. But again, like budget is an issue with some people and they're already paying for a coach. So I have to think sometimes like what testing is going to give me the most valuable information for their situation. So in, in men and, 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 you know, in men and women, you know, I have a woman, I, I'll give you like a really common scenario would be they have uh they're bloated all the time. They don't go to the bathroom regularly. They have that lower GI bloating. They maybe have their skin is a little off. Um, they have acne or uh, psoriasis or something like that. Generally don't feel very good. Brain fog, et cetera, swings and moods. 
they also don't have a menstrual cycle. So we'll say like, they've got all this going on, right? Well, their background is they've dieted a bunch. You know, they're very stressed out. Typical, like accumulate the cumulative stress background. So like, I look at that, it's like, all right, what do we do with that? They don't have money to do all these testing. So you probably see me talk about like Dutch tests and you do all this shit. So, so what, do, what do they have money for? Well, I know, okay. I know off the top of my head that the, this person's going to benefit a ton from stress reduction and their menstrual cycle is going to benefit a ton from stress reduction. They need progesterone. Their progesterone's not being produced because they have too much cortisol and they're too stressed. So it's like, okay, well, we can fix that without a test, or we can at least improve that without a test and without money. So we do that. And we know that the stress reduction is also going to help with their gut motility and um, in that piece. So we can do that. We know that their overall sex hormones are downregulated because they've been so underfed and overtrained for a while. So we can fix that by slowly increasing food and reducing activity. So we have all that, right? That's pretty much free stuff. And then um, the gut issues like, okay, well, they have a lot of symptoms like bloating. Bloating is super broad. I mean, bloating can be a bunch of things, right? So in my eyes, I'm thinking, okay, well, the best bang for a buck might be the GI map on this person. So I can make sure that if we do a protocol that we're, that we're addressing the right thing. So GI map, what it is, how they normally would do it is you literally collect a stool sample and you send it in and they, they evaluate it that way. So it's an at-home kit. Um, every kit's a little bit different, but here the G, literally to be like completely graphic about it, it looks like a, looks like a, the little paper tray that you would get at a, at the pub or like at the fair that holds your French fries in it. <laughs> and you, you put, you poop into the tray, you scoop it into a tube and that, and then you mix it in a solution. That solution preserves it. You mail it, you get a result that shows you essentially normal bacteria, dysbiotic bacteria shows you presence of fungus, presence of parasites, um, presence of, um, like different infectious bacteria. It would show you like, inflammatory bacteria that might be present. The GI map even measures, uh, beta glucuronidase, which is an enzyme that controls estrogen metabolism in the body, um, or estrogen excretion. So the, I think the new ones, the new ones even measure, cause we're, we're going over one today with a different client. They even measure antibiotic resistant genes that come out mm. in the stool. So that's pretty cool. Um, they measure a ton of cool stuff. So to me, I know a lot of the hormone hormonal stuff is going to be really boiled down to just getting that systemic stress load down. And a lot of that's going to help their gut too, but they have bacteria that we have to get rid of. So that, that requires a protocol. So that requires a GI map. Yeah. So that's how I basically am like determining which of those types of testing that I would want to do with a client. Yeah, that's so interesting. I've literally like never heard a coach talk about that before. It's definitely very terrible. Yeah, every day. So I do that yeah. stuff every single day. <laughs> so, you know. You're the man to go for for it. That's really funny. So it's bodybuilders too. Like that, um, you know, starting to see the value. Some of the bodybuilders are starting to see the value in it more. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of like male bodybuilders, it's just like, they want to find the coach that has the best drugs, like the best drug information. <laughs> and I'll tell you that, 
the better your body functions, the better results, you're, the, the better those PDs are going to work, the better that food's going to work, the better that training is going to work. You know, um, I mean, it might seem, it seems like hippie stuff to those, to those guys, but you know, I have, oops, sorry. I have more than one person that's close to or over 300 pound bodybuilders and we do GI health. Like, you know, they have a digestive system and they're eating a shitload of food because they're giant. So it's like, we have to take care. It's like, we have to take care of it. I mean, GI issues are rampant in male bodybuilders. They're rampant in females from like more of the stress and, and under eating and dieting component and hormones. They're rampant in males from excessive PED use and overeating. Right. You mentioned so, food you're forcing your body to deal with on yeah. a basis. And if you're eating all this food, but you're not digesting, absorbing, assimilating a lot of it, then like, what's the point? You want to maximize it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I've had several instances where that people come in and then we, we go through and a lot of this stuff, like you don't have to, it's not like you necessarily have to completely stop your progress. So what I do with a lot of my guys is if we have something to work on, we work on that during like their cleanup and mini cut phases, right? Cause we're already reducing food. So that's less GI strain. So we'll kind of, if we have an issue, we'll kind of wipe that stuff out while they're cleaning up their body fat and while they're reducing that stress load. And then that way, when it's time to grow again, boom, we're ready to rock. Like we're, we're good to go. So, um, yeah, it's, like it's for the guys, like the, the big, the big guys, like it's still, it's still relevant. It's not just the females that are getting sick and having issues. Yeah. They just have different causes or different yeah. why it's kind of manifesting. Right. Yep. For sure. Yep. It's just, uh, it's, it's getting there. People are, people are kind of figuring out and I get it. Like there's, there's so, there's so much information and people, you know, a lot of stuff online do this for your gut health or do this for your gut health. It's like, well, I'm not going to tell you to do anything for your gut health unless I know what your gut health is, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like shooting in the dark. Yeah. It's uh, it would be, it would be like anything. It's like giving a, it's like giving a blanket suggestion for training. It's like do this much workload or volume in your training when they don't know anything about you. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, well, how do you make that suggestion? Yeah. You know, um, you can give generalities. Like I try to give some general things on here in terms of like stuff that you, that anyone could do, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you can't, can't talk in absolutes, right? You just don't until you know somebody a little better. Yeah. I think from my perspective as a scientist, I tend to be quite skeptical about things. So a lot of the stuff revolving, say tests, for example, intolerance tests and stuff are, have obviously, a lot of them have been debunked. and have, Yeah, intolerance have, tests are junk. So that's when I kind of, I tentatively approach new things, but then I do my own research and kind of come to my own conclusion yep. about whether I think they're worth it. Yeah, yeah, like I don't, food intolerance tests, like they normally use um, like IgG or IgE, like uh, allergy type of testing, garbage. Mm-hmm. They don't, they're not very accurate and they don't, and again, like I said, like a lot of the intolerances are mainly because of some other underlying issue. Like the GI map's nice because it's literally measuring what's this, what's in the stool, right? Um, and then you can you can work from that. But yeah, a lot of the like uh, 
there's some really funky kind of gimmicky GI tests out there. Like some of the microbiome, like take this test and it'll tell you, uh, what kind of food you should eat based on your microbiome. So, yeah. yeah. And there's no, there's no real, on, like, you usually find them on like Groupon or something for like, yeah, like, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that's junk. I mean, there's I don't, really validity. I mean, really, like I said, the only, the only testing I really use GI is the GI map. It does. They use, um, they use some different technology that's actually used a lot of other stool testing. Like if you were to go to a gastro doctor, they use a really similar because a gastro doctor can do stool samples too for tests for certain things. Um, and the other would be breath tests for SIBO. Those are pretty, they have a, some good validity behind them. Um, they, they basically just measure like the amount of hydrogen or methane in your breath. And that can confirm that. But other than that, no food sensitivity testing, um, no like DNA, like weird testing like that. I don't really use any of that stuff. Um, but, um, symptoms are always, you know, symptoms and, and information is always helpful as well. Yeah. You kind of need to look for a test that just provides you with the data and then you interpret it yourself rather than yep. them kind of gleaning from it themselves and kind of suggesting a certain thing to you, you know? Because they're selling you something <laughs> yeah. is what's happening. Like it's, there's always something that they're gaining out of that where rather than just providing you with a test, hmm. you know, it's like, eh. it's like, well, here's the protocol for your problem it's like all right but what affiliation do you have with the yeah. protocol <laughs> you know yeah um, different types of like say for example we have like 23 and me which is just a test that kind of shows you your right, right. genetic makeup but then we have other ones that are more suggestive and, and kind of drop more ideas in your head whereas really they should just tell you okay you have an x susceptibility to this but not actually kind of plant ideas or or plant suggestions in your head because right. you kind of interpret that yourself yep yeah so the um one of the things i do with with my um education clients too is when we go over gi maps there's a pretty nice guide that actually is research-based like it's almost purely research-based that shows you like what the different types of bacteria mean based on the research that we have on them mm -hmm. so um there's studies cited so it's pretty nice like it's you know this bacteria has is more present in obese populations or this bacteria is present in inflammatory bowel diseases or you know stuff like that so it's um i'm very much um i'm very much in lean towards research i mean anecdotal stuff i mean anecdotal stuff always research is normally confirming something that we probably already tried before somewhere but I want to know that what I've tried is also right. Mm -hmm. Right. And it wasn't just a coincidence or something like that. So, so yeah, the, I'm, I'm really hoping that there is more, there is more research. Uh, there's still a few little things that aren't quite acknowledged in the research that we definitely see um, like, like leaky guts, not really research friendly, but in, if you use intestinal permeability, then that's like a little more, accepted that you can jump on PubMed and find a bunch about intestinal permeability issues. Um, you know, and you can say that about a lot of things like adrenal fatigue, 
not a medical diagnosis, but we can measure, you know, we can measure cortisol response and ACTH response and stuff like that. So it's like, it really just depends on if you can measure it with a valid testing method, it is real. It's just a matter of what do you call it and what validity does the information have and how do you use the information? You know, um, that's really what it, what it boils down to. Yeah. It just takes time as well, doesn't it? Cause everything that is now commonly accepted was at one point not commonly accepted. Sure. So it just takes time for people to kind of have that idea solidified and, and for it to have the backing and the trust. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, coaching and bodybuilding and all this stuff evolves all the time. You know, I mean, there's stuff it's like some of this stuff with some of the functional health aspects and stuff. I was talking about this stuff five, six, seven years ago. I didn't know. I knew that I kind of knew there was something to it, but I didn't know what, like, I didn't fully understand it yet, but I was starting to realize like, Oh, this is, this is important. And I started to realize that our, how the medical community, I was like, why does the medical community have a specialist for every single thing when, and they don't communicate with, like, they don't, they don't talk to each other. So, you know, why did, why is all this stuff separated when there's feedback loop between all these systems? So that's, you know, you started getting into that. And then now tons of people are figuring that out. You know what I mean? So it's all in time, you know, research will, research will catch up. Um, and there's also, you also like, if you know how to read research, there's also agendas in, in research as well. So you got to kind of know that. Yeah. You're like, also, you funded this paper and this right. project. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you've seen way more of that than me being in the research side of things. It's like, there's, there is a financial aspect to who's doing what, and there's a financial aspect to what kind of study they can do because of their, their budget. Um, so there's a lot of like limitations and, and things that happen. Yeah, because I've seen both sides because I've worked on site, like dealing with the clinical trial patients. And now I work for the sponsor. So I work for like Pfizer or Roche or, or people like that who are kind of the big guys. So I've kind of seen both aspects of, of clinical. That's neat. Yeah, I have no I have no um, formal research background other than just reading research and a lot of like I have a lot of application mm-hmm. experience with coaching. So, but yeah, I've never, it's interesting. Like I, I always enjoy talking to people um, that are in that field, you know, in the U S we have some, you know, we've got like Dr. Scott, oh, yeah. Dr. Scott's awesome. Um, yeah. And then, and then there's also some that I don't really like that much because they're hell bent on, on everything and not willing to flex on any single thing. Mm-hmm. So that's also not a great, you know, a great mindset, but yeah, like it doesn't, it doesn't matter how like traditionally educated you are, you need to be open to changing your opinions and views. And that's what makes a good scientist or a good researcher is someone who's open to change instead of being like dogmatic and just stuck in the mud. Like cause right. things change, opinions change, research is new and you know, we have to change our minds sometimes. Yep. For sure. Yep. So cool. Yeah. I hope that was useful. 
Now it's very interesting. It's something that because I saw you talking about it obviously on Facebook, and it's um not something I've looked at in a while. Like as I said, I did it during one of my nutrition courses and and in my degree, but I haven't really touched on it in a while because my current focus is primarily like exercise mechanics. So I was like, let's just talk about something completely different. So uh, I can get, a new, <laughs> get I'll have a new focus for a while. I can do some research into this. I have a lot of uh, ammunition now to go off and, and do my own research now. Yep. My, my YouTube channel is always a good one. There's like little applicable bits on there. You can always check that out. So yeah, go and plug, plug yourself where everyone can find you and. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, Austin Stout on Facebook, my, in the, my bio, my link trees in there, you can get, you know, my YouTube channel podcasts and my Instagram link and stuff will be in there. Um, Austin ST and the number eight on Instagram. That's me. So again, go to the bio link tree that'll have links to like website, YouTube channel, uh, my emails in there for coaching inquiries. So all that stuff's in there. Um, I put a bunch of, I put videos on YouTube once a week ish, different, all kinds of different stuff. I do like a whiteboard chat where it's more mechanistic stuff. So like more sciencey stuff, this is how this works. And this is why you should care. Um, I do Q and A's, um, IG lives, do IG live chats, podcasts. So it's all kinds of stuff. Very good. And you, do you are you a part of the physique education collective as well? Is that, that's part of um, So I, they, I, I am not, well, sort of, I speak at their seminars because we're, I was like, we're friends and we all share similar interests. So I do speak at the seminars a lot. Now I am not on their podcast. Okay. Um, so I, I have been on the podcast as a guest for a few times, but I'm not actually on their podcast. I'm kind of a lone wolf. I'm like, <laughs> do my own, do like my own thing. So, um, wander around and get the best of everything. Yep. But, uh, but yeah, lots of, I have tons and tons of free stuff floating around. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. So if, if the listeners hadn't heard of you, then they have plenty to go off and learn about and listen to and, and watch so that's been really, really helpful so thank you so much Austin for coming on the podcast it's been really really fun but if you guys do tune in and you enjoy it I would really appreciate if you could take a screenshot share it to your story tag myself and Austin my Instagram is at Holly Davidge I really appreciate anyone that shares it um it means a lot and yeah if you have any suggestions for future episodes or topics or guests my DMs are always open if you want to drop them in there so yeah Thank you guys very much for listening and we'll catch you next time.